Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the rich religious heritage of the Sufi shrines of South Asia and their fate in the modern state of Pakistan. For much of the past thousand years and across most of the Islamic world, the shrines of Sufi holy men were important pilgrimage places, but also important places of religious learning that combined mausolea for Sufi saints who were buried there, as well as madrasas, teaching centres, mosques, sometimes soup kitchens, and other buildings for pilgrims. But in the modern period of religious reform, Sufi shrines came under tremendous criticism, not least in Pakistan, a state that was founded to protect the Muslim traditions of South Asia. I'll be setting the scene in a little bit more detail as I begin our interview today with Dr. Ambar bin Abad. Dr. bin Abad is Associate Professor in the History Department at Foreman Christian College University in Lahore, Pakistan, and was previously an Honorary Research Fellow in the School of Social Sciences at the University of Manchester. He's the author of Sufi Shrines and the Pakistani State, The End of Religious Pluralism, which was published by IB Taurus in 2019. <laughs> Hello, Amber. Welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Yeah, thanks. It's nice to be here. Well, today we're going to be talking about the topic of Sufi shrines, about the history and in some ways the fate of Sufi shrines, particularly in Pakistan and to some extent over the longer history of South Asia, uh, what we now think of as the, the nation states of Pakistan, but also India and Bangladesh. And that's a really important region, I think we must say at the beginning, to be thinking about Islam, because although people usually associate Islam with the Middle East, for the past couple of hundred years, probably, we, we don't really have reliable historical population numbers, but for the past couple of hundred years, it's probably fair to say that South Asia had a larger Muslim population than the Middle East. And it's a really really significant uh, region, not just for demographic regions, but also because of the, the huge Im input uh, of, of uh, South Asia into Islam, and indeed of the huge input of Islam into South Asia, and the emergence there of of forms of Islam that are related to those of other regions of the, the Muslim world, but also take on some of their own particular characteristics, both in the pre-modern period and indeed of the modern era of the nation state, in our case, Pakistan. And we're going to be addressing these kind of bigger issues through looking at the history and the more contemporary predicaments of the Sufi shrines. Now, you're going to explain to us in more detail, aren't you, of course, what a Sufi shrine is, but perhaps it helps me to help, will help our listeners if I start out by, by saying, well, when we we say Sufi shrine, we effectively mean the burial place of a Sufi holy man, occasionally one of the Sufi saints. Because although people generally think of Islam as a religion of the mosque, Muslims go to worship at mosques, period, end of story. For most of the past thousand years, let's say, and for most regions of the Muslim world, Islam has largely been, a, let's say, a mosque and or a mosque plus religion. The mosque has always been there, but people have also, Muslims have also uh, carried out their religion, performed the different religious practices you'll be telling us about at these 
other sacred spaces that we call in today shrines. There can be Shiite shrines for Shiite uh, holy men and indeed holy women, but also for most of the regions of the Sunni, uh, the Sunni uh, Muslim world, Sufi shrine. And in a sense, that's perhaps not surprising when we think of a rich religious tradition. Christians, okay, Christians go to church, but for so much of Christian history, Christianity has also been a religion of church plus. Christians have also had, of course, monasteries and, of course, their own pilgrimage centers for their own saints as well, particularly Catholic Christianity. So as we start to delve deeper into our topic then of, uh, of understanding these Sufi shrines and their relationship to Islam and their relationship to different competing forms of Islam, one might say, perhaps uh, you could uh, explain for us, Amber, in a bit more detail, what is a Sufi shrine? Well, Sufi shrines are the places where uh, where uh, a lot of devotees go for the for uh, for a little different reasons than going to to mosque. Like uh, there are numerous uh, sh such shrines in Pakistan. It, in fact, all over the world, in the uh, in all over the Islamic world, but even but in Pakistan, you'll find numerous shrines uh, all all over the place, in cities and in, in villages. I mean, tell them you find a, even a street where uh, where you won't find a. a a shrine in Pakistan at a certain site. Like we have uh, uh, one of the famous uh, shrine in Lahore, like Data, what we call it, Darga uh, of Data Darba, uh, as it is famously called. It's a, basically it's a tomb of a saint uh, who came here uh, with the name Hazrat Ali Hajwari, as it is uh, pronounced. He came from uh, he was uh, he came from uh, Afghanistan uh, with the army of uh, Mahmud Ghaznavi. Mahmud Ghaznavi was the invader who invaded India in uh, like uh, 11th century, early 11th century, uh, for 17 times. And uh, it, this saint came uh, with the with the army and settled there uh, in Lahore. And later on his shrine became one of the most famous uh, what gradually became one of the famous shrines of uh, of um, uh, Lahore and this region. And uh, after this uh, making of this uh, Pakistan, this shrine has become a center. Uh, I must say one of the most uh, yeah, important and significant shrines, both in the sense of uh, getting popularity and and uh, in the sense of uh, its spiritual charisma. So it attracts a lot of devotees, and uh, these devotees go there for their personal needs for making vows and uh, uh, for even for uh, for praying uh, even for simple praying in as muslims do like namaz uh, because it has large mosque along with the town so perhaps you can tell us in in, in more detail what kind of buildings are there in these shrine complexes? And, and indeed, uh, what do people do there? What kind of religious practices or even religious aspirations do people go on pilgrimage to these shrines for? Well, uh, at most of the shrines, you find graves, uh, um, definitely, like tombs. Tombs are there. And uh, with many of such tombs, uh, you may find like... Uh, 
uh, a big dome-like structure, like where which only enhances the environment, then you may find uh, such domes and such such domes in in the larger graveyard, or you may find such in in the private in the private sphere in the private uh, areas. So so at such places, people have been going for uh, for more intimate purposes for asking the saint that uh, if he could he he could ask he, he could favor uh, them for and uh, give them the blessings then it's uh, it's it's you know it's 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 this that they normally go and visit such uh, such places for and and in this sense uh, the saints the sufi saints because of the the widespread belief that these were uh, in the Arabic term, the awliya Allah, the, the friends of God, the, the, those human beings who were most uh, had the closest relationship uh, with God, people believe then that they become, as it were, channels for, for divine grace. And, and indeed, uh, one might say that the, the Sufi saints, when they're alive, but also when they're dead, of course, in, in their shrines, in their graves, they become intercessionary figures. And as we go on in our conversation, we'll, we'll perhaps return to this idea of intercession because theologically, that's become one of the big objections, hasn't it, in, in the 19th and the 20th and the 21st century to these Sufi shrines. Yeah. So, so people come to shrines then, just as, as Catholics, I suppose, go to saintly shrines as well, asking for help with any number of their problems in life. Perhaps uh, women come because they're, they're seeking pregnancy, or often a male child in, in, in South Asia. People come because they've lost their jobs, because a member of their family is sick, or even I remember in many Sufi shrines I've been to myself in India and Pakistan that one even sees at certain times of the year exam papers sort of being hung uh, around shrines as well for, for hope for success in, in all important civil service exams or, or high school exams. Um, but there are also some quite specific traditional cultural practices associated with shrines, aren't there? Particular types of music and indeed these annual festivals called the, the Urs. Perhaps you can tell us about about those uh, practices at Shrine. Yes, at most of the shrines, you we, we can find uh, people singing uh, uh, mystical poems, mystical verses of most of the time of uh, of some even of some saints, of some famous saints. Like in in our part, we have the Kavalis that we have. They are sung. They are mostly the poems of uh, or the verses of the great poets like Bulesha or Varish uh, Shah. Uh, I mean the uh, who belong to this part of the land, uh, this Punjab and they uh, they they had a they they made their uh, works in in this particular language that is local punjabi language yes they do such things that's fascinating ambar because it, it gives us a sense that 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 these shrines are really in many ways they're religious centers of course but they're really kind of rich cultural centers that have preserved the cultural heritage of of south asian muslims you mentioned punjabi poets like Shah, but of course the different sufi shrines in different regions have had songs in in persian some going back to amir khosrow who died in 1325 so these are big sort of literary centers where i'm saying poems and you're quite rightly saying songs because these are, are lyrics aren't they often love poems that are devotional poems to god but also using the the imagery of human love to to evoke the relationship between between the muslim and uh, and allah between the pilgrim and, and and god 
and there are particular types of music as well, aren't there, that, are, that, are, that, are, that these poems, these songs are embedded in. Perhaps you can tell us about those and, uh, and indeed these, these annual festivals, these Urs festivals which take place at the shrines. Yes, this is uh, uh, like the Urs is a bit, uh, it's a bit strange uh, occasion because it's, it's the death ceremony. It's, it, it's, it's the day when, when saint uh, is no more in the world. Uh, but it is normally celebrated because the saint is like finally met the beloved, beloved God. So it is the time to celebrate. And uh, at most of the, uh, most of this yearly occasion, it's a festive time. One may find uh, different festivals, different, uh, different things going on on these festivals. Uh, the music like Kavali, uh, and the, the dance, the folk dance, like the mall is going on. And similarly, like shops, one, one can find different shops uh, around and can go for shopping there. Like um, uh, one can have uh, uh, food shops uh, there. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like at, at that day and those days, uh, it's both religious for the religious purpose that people go there. And it's also for the recreational purpose that they go there. It's like a mixing of, of both of these things at that, at that occasion. Yes, and you, you, and you mentioned, and you, that, that, that apparent oddity, isn't it? That, that people are celebrating the death day, the, the annual death anniversary of the same. But, but as you mentioned, that, that's celebrated because that's considered to be the, the day, a, a day, a joyful day when the saint is finally reunited with his or her divine beloved. And that's why the word urs is used, isn't it? Because it's an old Arabic word, which means a wedding. So, and that gives us this clue then, doesn't it, in a sense, that, that all this celebration, as you mentioned, that the music, the fairgrounds, the dance, traditional dances, and all of the shops and the bright lights, the churarani, as, the, as they're called, these are there because the death anniversary of the saint is, it's like a wedding day, isn't it? It's when the saint is, is married to their divine beloved. So we're getting a sense here, I suppose, I mean, as you, as you mentioned, I mean, I think it's a really important point that, that these are religious occasions, but they're festive occasions. And it reminds me in a sense of, let's say, in, in Catholic Christianity, and I think we might in a way make a comparison, say, well, there's a Protestant Islam which doesn't like any of this stuff. And there's a Catholic Islam, you know, by comparison, rather like there's a, a Protestant Christianity which has no saints and no shrines and pilgrimage and is often being very skeptical about music, let alone dance. And similarly, there's, there's, there's obviously a Catholic Christianity and with things like the Carnival, the Carnival of Rio de Janeiro, which after all is actually a, a religious holy day as much as it's a sort of a, you know, a secular holiday, at least in its origin. So given what you presented as this really appealing image that irreverently but being extremely popular with ordinary Muslims in South Asia and beyond for, for many, many centuries, why have... Why, why have today, and well, why did really from the 19th century, why did shrines and these practices become the focus of so much criticism from Muslim reformists? Well, uh, the, the, my immediate response should be that it's, uh, it's because of the British rule. This is from where I should start. Like uh, the British rule inserted a few changes uh, that have changed the ways of looking one's own self, one's own uh, places, one's own religion. So it's like a, 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 like British, British rule has uh, introduced a reform in the region. Uh, they, have, they have introduced new economy. They have linked local economy with the global economy, uh, definitely with the colonizing uh, 
uh, agenda. But the impact of the reform is uh, quite wide, and uh, and uh, it definitely touched the the sociality of uh, of that time. Uh, so the the pre-colonial time, uh, as you've already mentioned, is is like living in a worldview where where the uh, which is kind of a hierarchical world where uh, God is in the top and uh, uh, man is somewhere at the bottom, and then there are kind of ways in which man while uh, uh, while doing spiritual practices can travel near to the God. So it's like in this sort of worldview, Sufi or the Sufi Peer or the Saint had, had most of its sense. Uh, and that sense uh, in locality means that if you go uh, to the peer who is already working hard for it, for uh, uh, for going closer to the god, uh, then, uh, then then the peer and or the Sufi can help you a lot. So it is this intermediary uh, sort of a worldview which disturbed by the by a lot of the changes uh, that have been introduced by the British rule, and that British rule and those of the changes have in turn. Uh, introduced uh, so social uh, i mean the changes in the in the uh, in the identity formation and a lot of reform reforming uh, reformist activities uh, like uh, we have uh, famous Durban school and then we have that railway school of thought then we have uh, rationalists like the Sayyid's movement and then we have later on such political religious uh, parties like jamaat islami led by Maududi Sahib. so it's uh, it, it, these reformist movements uh, on the one hand they uh, they wanted to, to move away from the archaic remnants of their religious life from uh, and they wanted to become one of the you know the rational participants of the spaces that are there that were there because of the because of the colonial insertions because of the changes that have been produced uh, because of the british policy So you, you, you mentioned a few of the, the names of these different reform groups, and it was one might say really from the 19th century, when most of these reformist organizations, these religious Muslim reformist organizations uh, and theological movements, I should add, emerged. It, it, we, we're still going through, as it were, the, a Muslim reformation in Pakistan and elsewhere. You mentioned the names of, the names of perhaps some of the most important ones. Uh, the, the Deoband School. We actually have an Akbar's chamber about Deoband, I'm, I'm happy to say, so readers might want to, to, to listen to that as well. Um, and you also mentioned the Bareilvi School, which are these two schools which are very influential in Pakistan. I say schools, they're theological schools, but they're also quite literally schools that they have lots and lots of madrasas throughout Pakistan, don't they? Perhaps you, you could outline for us the, the sort of the different takes of the, the Deobandis and the Bareilvis with regard to Sufi shrines? Well, Deobandi school and the Braille school, they both emerged out of the shrine-based life. I mean, when I say shrine-based, I mean the founding fathers of these movements. They were either themselves were part of the lineage of the caretakers of the shrine, like we, what we say, Tajada Nashim, not the, of the, the of of different dargahs, uh, of different shrines, or they somehow mystically or spiritually linked with such personalities. So their, uh, but their effort was to move in their own imagination, that that to move the community out of those uh, out of those practices which were in a sense closer to pure Islam and uh, uh, which had which had lot of innovation, which were not uh, you know 
taught by the by the by the pure by the pure Islam. So in that way, they, their own imagination of what what they understood as a pure Islam, they tried to move away by criticizing the ongoing widespread shrine-based practices in their own ways. Like Deobandi school, uh, they emphasized on, uh, on uh, they both have kind of Sunni uh, school of thought. So when I say Sunni, means they, I mean the broadly, uh, we can divide Muslims into sects. One is Shia, the other is Sunni. Uh, so, so, and Sunni means that they follow, a, they follow certain uh, schools of thought, similar school of thoughts and uh, mostly um, imam uh, what we call it fiqh fiqh means uh, schools of schools of thoughts uh, so and the most famous one is hanafi school of thought so uh, they, these both movements though they erupted they emerged in late 19th century to respond uh, the invasion the british invasion on the society uh, they both in a sense came out of the shrine based life both from the sunni uh, schools of thought but both have dip both emphasized differently on this uh, uh, like Deoband, uh, they criticized a lot uh, a shrine going uh, practice, uh, though they accepted the spiritual side of uh, of this uh, uh, this whole uh, thing. Uh, but the Brailby, uh, they 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 never disliked going to shrines. Uh, but they introduced a uh, charter of reforms or so, sort of a thing, like a long list of reforms that when one goes to, uh, to shrine, what practices one should, one should do there. So they chart out the, the long list of those uh, practices and uh, making even going to shrine kind of a, a kind of uh, legalized Islamic practice. So it's, it's like both of the movements uh, uh, moved away, but at the same time, they, uh, uh, they, they were also reformists in their own ways. That's really interesting. I mean, particularly the, the point you started off with, that both the, the Deobandi and the Bareilibi schools of theology emerged out of the, the, the shrine culture, because uh, when we talked about these shrines as complexes, part of the what traditional shrines had was also a madrasa a madrasa a sort of a school for for learning the the the, the legal aspects of islam, of islam as you mentioned fiqh jurisprudence the legal traditions of islam but also the mystical tradition these schools were actually physically present within these larger shrine complexes but with the deobandis they started founding their madrasas away from shrines indeed as you mentioned criticizing the popular practices particularly these things like the urs, the music, certainly bowing down before the shrine, before the grave, of a, or even circling and walking around, making a, a circumambulation of the, the grave of the Sufi saint. But the Deobandis nonetheless maintained, having criticized as, as, as innovations, that's a bad word in Islamic theology, isn't it? Bidat, that means something that the Prophet Muhammad didn't do, so people have, have, have invented it, a bad innovation afterwards, implicitly the Deoband is criticized as, as, as bad innovations. All of these things we've described in terms of the, the musical life, the poetic life, etc. But the Deoband is wanted to maintain the more, let's say, spiritual and metaphysical, indeed the spiritual disciplines of, of Sufism. And, and those indeed are still taught in at least some Deobandi madrasas. But the Barelabis, by contrast, they were, let's say, defending some of those popular practices. But in this let's say, this contentious relationship that's emerged between the two theological schools, particularly in Pakistan, 
the Bereliwis have had to reform so many of those popular practices in order to defend some of them, let's say. And, and, and those developments have been, in a sense, complicated or in some ways, some ways enforced by the emergence of Pakistan. So these, these two schools emerge and the Deobandis emerge in the, let's say, the, the last quarter of the, the 19th century. The Bareilvi is more or less in the first quarter of the 20th century, you know, kind of roughly speaking. And then in 1947, we have the foundation of a new, a new political entity, don't we, called Pakistan, which is founded to be a state for Muslims. And ultimately becomes what it defines as the Islamic Republic. So the state itself starts becoming um, a player, let's say, in these religious debates and in these religious reforms. And this is where your wonderful book comes in, doesn't it? About, about the role of the Pakistani state in shrine culture. So perhaps you can explain to us then what happened to the shrines after the foundation of Pakistan in 1947? Well, the... Uh... Thanks for mentioning first uh, of my book, and uh, yes, uh, uh, because the because the Muslim elite that emerged uh, during the colonial times during the uh, British rule, uh, it had developed the tendency to to refine its own identity, to to nurture its own uh, Muslim identity, and uh, only by pushing uh, further this identity. Uh, while excluding the other religious uh, uh, players at the time, like Hindus and Sikhs and and Jains and Buddhists and a lot of others, uh, uh, you know, communities and the, or the communal groups at the time, uh, this identity formation has uh, has uh, uh, has increased with, with gradually with the uh, with the politics uh, uh, going on uh, during the British rule. So uh, the 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 emergence of Pakistan in 1947 uh, was, in fact, the continuity of the political uh, 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 rule developed by the by the by the by the British state uh, by the British control in India. So it's the it's that continuity that carried on within the Pakistan itself, because the the emergence of Pakistan as a state which which claimed uh, to be different because of the ideologically ideological difference it's something very new uh, to, uh, within the international uh, scene uh, because uh, one is one can be i mean a country can be a nation state uh, but that nation normally means the ethnically rooted uh, nation uh, but ideologically different uh, uh, nation it's like uh, uh, we only have two uh, and one is Pakistan, obviously, right now in the world. So it was uh, quite a so so it so the elite that uh, that ran the whole uh, theme, whole the whole politics for the uh, for Pakistan was was uh, really uh, quite motivated, religiously motivated. They were they were looking for some ideal um, uh, ideal landscapes, ideal religious landscape for them. Uh, they, 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 they were oblivious of the fact that they, uh, that they were playing within the interpretations, like, like uh, uh, different ways of understanding uh, their own identity. But somehow, this, uh, uh, so this thing continued within Pakistan, and it only increased with the time. As uh, Pakistan uh, uh, started, uh, uh, the Pakistani politics started 
shifting towards the towards further Islamization to 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 portray itself uh, uh, further an Islamized country. So this uh, portraying uh, and this push towards the further Islamization um, uh, means a, a, a further crit criticism for the shrine-based practices because the it is this shrine-based form of uh, uh, form of devotional practice uh, that was uh, that, that upon which this whole uh, reformist and the and the identity formation uh, it first of all it it developed uh, so so the and so after making uh, of pakistan like 1947 uh, if you allow me let me briefly say that pakistan uh, as pakistan emerged out the the the, the as one of the most, as one of the majority Muslim country, uh, uh, but it couldn't enjoy good relation with India from the very first day. So it's like uh, uh, one of the religion. It's like one of the uh, one of the thing embedded within the religion and the religious ideological uh, 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 thinking of early Pakistani elite, both religious and non-religious. That it is bad to have Hindu practices. Uh, in any any in any form, uh, and uh, the and most of it, they find those practices uh, on shrines uh, and the sacred sites uh, similar to the shrines. Yes, because this is it, isn't it? The 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 Deobandis in particular, but also various of the the, the, the Pakistani nationalist modernists. We have a, a podcast by Mahmoud Qasim Zaman, I should advertise, on, on the actually history of, of Islamic modernism and, and indeed the ideology of the, the Islamic elite who founded Pakistan that, that listeners might want to check into. But, but as you've mentioned, this idea of, the, of, of Hindu influences, this is what the Deobandis have been saying, that, that when Muslims are going to these shrines and having these festivals like the Urus, that's copied from Hindu, Hinduism. That's a Hindu influence. It's, that's a bad innovation. And some of the the Pakistani um, uh, elite who, who found the country, they, they absorb this idea, don't they, as part of their idea of modernism, that this isn't really Islam, and it's not national, it's not Pakistani either, this belongs to India. Isn't it? So, so there are these stages, aren't there, as from 1947 onwards, as you explain in your book, in 1959, when General Ayub Khan becomes the ruler of Pakistan, he puts into, into practice certain legal change, doesn't it, by which the state starts to exert more direct political, economic, and ultimately religious control over, over the shrines. Perhaps you can talk us through some of those, uh, those kind of, you know, those, those changes, those uh, stepping stones towards the the, the increasing role of the Pakistani state over these shrines. Uh, yes, the 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 role of the state uh, it started as early as like 1950s, and uh, when when such uh, uh, efforts were underway, that is to to Islamize even even the sacred sites of shrines to take them in uh, at least in some sort of control and uh, and uh, and see the their uh, their earnings where they are going on. So uh, the corruption is one of the main issues that uh, emerged um, um, initially as a, as, a, as a crisis at the site of shrines and, and became the reason for the, uh, for, uh, for the state to take, uh, to take a matter 
you know, uh, more closely uh, and to, to deal with it. So the first effort uh, emerged in like 1951-52, uh, but uh, it couldn't go smoothly. And when Ayub Khan came in power in like uh, in uh, 1958, he immediately introduced a, uh, an act uh, which is called Pakistan Works Properties Ordinance. And he uh, sort of nationalized uh, um, uh, the significant shrines of uh, Pakistan, especially those shrines who who, um, who have the ability to earn uh, to earn a lot of uh, income, or those have the uh, larger uh, uh, land attached to their to their uh, sites. So the uh, the the ordinance uh, also introduced uh, initiated a department, a separate department called uh, Works Department. Uh, which was uh, uh, given responsibility to take over directly uh, different significant shrines. And first, uh, first of these shrines that uh, is the Data uh, Darbar uh, itself, uh, of the, the Dargah of Ali Hajwari of Lahore, that uh, uh, that uh, the Okaf department has taken over in 1959. So as early as 1959 or late 1960. So and then gradually uh, uh, it continued and until now it's like five more than 500 shrines only in Punjab that they have uh, that department has already taken over. Yeah, and, and let's be clear about the what's at stake here, isn't it? You mentioned land, you mentioned corruption, and and you also mentioned the word waqf and alqaf in the plural and the waqf department. And and waqf is the the Arabic word and the word in Urdu as well for for an endowment of land, isn't it? Because such was the, the importance to Muslims over the, the centuries of these shrines that the wealthier Muslims, the Mughal emperors, not least, and the aristocracy, gave lots of land to these shrines to generate revenue. And, and the British let, left these shrine holders, the hereditary shrine caretakers, as you've described, and the Sajjad machines let them hold these lands. So, so in parts of, in much of Pakistan, in fact, the, the shrines and their hereditary keepers were some of the biggest and richest landholders in the country. And in addition, the, the more popular shrines might get perhaps even hundreds of thousands of visitors, pilgrims every year, all of whom are going to make some donation, maybe a rupee, maybe, you know, tens of thousands of rupees or more. So there's a lot of revenue at stake, isn't there? There's a lot of land and a lot of income, and these claims then of, of corruption of particular shrines. And that's when the state, it reminds me of Henry VIII in England, when he seizes the properties of the monasteries in the name of a reformation, which actually works out you know, very good for him and for the power of the state. There's a sort of, a, I think, a parallel to be made there, isn't there? But then as time goes on, particularly through the 1980s, when there's another Pakistani uh, 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 military ruler, not General Ayub Khan this time, but uh, his later successor, then these reforms move even deeper, don't they? Perhaps you can take us through the, you know, the 80s and 90s and what's happening then in Pakistan. Okay, so, so the, from the very first day that when this state took over shrines, uh, it was already the ideologically motivated thing. Like each state since Ayub Khan, that they understood Islam in a certain day, 
and with that emphasis they they come for the for the reforms on at the site of shrines uh, like uh, you can introduce lot of lot of such reforms which were in a sense helpful for 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 the people visiting shrines like it uh, it started building uh, i I hospital at the site of uh, at the Data Ganjbaj uh, at the Data Darbar of Lahore. But uh, the the later ruler like Bhutasab, he was more like a going with the popular mood. So for for the first few years of his rule, he he was more for the for understanding and and uh, creating and going with the image of a of a popular sort of, of promoting popular popular form of uh, shrines 1970s onward 1970 like promoting shrines of uh, madulal hussain uh, which is a very interesting shrine in uh, in lahore now madulal madulal hussain now these two names one of them is kind of a hindu name and the other is a muslim name so but they they both are kind of uh, intertwined they they are joined together and and make a single shrine uh, so they so it's like a hindu and the and the muslim so it it reminds someone uh, uh the the past when the when both these communities uh, uh lived a life uh with the shared uh, ideas with the shared ideologies uh that uh, that were not uh, full of uh, enmity uh, and hatred for each other so this shrine of madulal uh, it is this shrine which which was favored by the by the early bhutto government but later on this is the same bhutto government that that gave that promoted such personalities like like one of the one of the figures that killed that killed the publisher who in 1926 published a book against against prophet muhammad prophet of islam so that that shrine pushing that sort of shrine means pushing the idea of uh, another sort of islam uh, so and when we go to the next government which means uh, the, the rule of general zialak another martial law dictator zialak we saw kind of prevalence of more conservative mind Mindset, more conservative religious mindset that i may introduce if you allow me to introduce a concept that mosque based islam so like the the site of shrines gradually since that time since zaula uh, time they were kind of revamped and reshaped uh, by introducing by by the construction of mosques the big structures of mosques at the site of shrines so the first of this kind uh, was built uh, at datta darbar a mosque was so big that uh, at that time it was the second most most biggest the second uh, biggest mosque of pakistan and right now it's the fourth biggest mosque of pakistan so which means the uh, uh, it showed the intention of the of the uh, of the rulers the ideological intention of the rulers that was to tell the direction of the devotees not for the tomb for the tombs for the for the shrine for the uh, for the dead saint but for the mosque uh, and mosque means uh, uh, a different form of uh, islamic uh, uh, religious practice that's a really kind of yeah i think that's a great visual symbol you evoked for us there isn't it that it would have been for um, i guess kind of over 900 years by this point the shrine of datta ganesh in, in lahore that He, by the time that Ziaul Haq builds the the new mosque in the 1980s, that shrine, that grave, was that mausoleum was literally towered over by this huge mosque, and that's a real big architectural statement, isn't it? That the way to God is not by going on a pilgrimage to this grave, 
he's not going to intercede for you. You need to go to the mosque and pray directly to Allah. So without actually bulldozing the shrine, let's say, there's this sort of architectural statement, as you said, that this is the way to God, not, to, not, not by uh, making a pilgrimage to what's then actually this much comparatively much smaller building. These developments have happened, haven't they, both with the state and others, this sort of, uh, uh, in, in some cases, sort of new architectural developments, but in some cases, actual attacks on the shrine, have, on different shrines in, in recent years as well, which, which you mentioned in your book. Perhaps you could tell us uh, a little bit about those developments too. Now, this is very interesting that, uh, uh, I mean, the shrines are in the custody, most of the significant shrines, where most of the devotees uh, love to go. Uh, most of those shrines uh, are in the uh, are controlled by the State Department. They've been uh, nationalized, haven't they? In that sense? Yes, it's it's nationalized. And uh, what does it mean by by controlling? It's it's nationalized. It's uh, um, no more caretaker. The, the customary caretaker is is uh, on these shrines. Uh, the control of uh, using monetary uh, gains. Uh, but are now out of the hands of uh, of the customary caretakers, and now they are uh, they are taken care of by the bureaucrats uh, or the managers of the of, uh, you know by um, who are there by the state. So so the 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 whole uh, uh, this whole panel, uh, uh, the so many numerous shrines, the significant shrines, they are controlled by the state for for so many decades, but still. The site of shrine is a contested space. Uh, it's it's still a contested space uh, by so many uh, by so many uh, radical thoughts, and uh, not only by the religious thoughts, uh, which which uh, definitely resulted uh, in the backlash of Talibanization, uh, which I explain a little uh, later now. Uh, but in but but also by the uh, by the new, newly emerging globalized political elite of Pakistan. Which considered uh, going to the shrine is like uh, a, a very irrational ways uh, of doing of doing uh, religion of, of practicing religion. So yes, the uh, uh, now coming to your uh, um, that uh, a bomb blast uh, and the act, like more than thirty shrines so far. I I, I must say uh, they have uh, uh, they are uh, suffered with the, with the with the bomb blast. Uh, and uh, uh, such, and uh, one can count among them, like the most popular shrines of uh, Darga uh, uh, Data Darbar uh, in Lahore, which which was hit at least three times uh, by the bomb blast, uh, and uh, then the Seventh Shri, one of the one another one of the most uh, famous shrine in in Sin, uh, which also attracted uh, uh, like hundreds of thousands of devotees. Um, uh, on the days of first and and regularly thousands of devotees uh, and uh, uh, not only to these popular shrines but also to these smaller shrines like uh, a, a bomb blast taken place in uh, uh, in lahore in the in the in the suburban part of lahore uh, a few uh, years back uh, at the in, in the shrine uh, which is a very smaller shrine uh, but which was famous because of its uh, uh, its emphasis on uh, on dance, on performing dance. Uh, the the saint peep, the saint of the shrine, uh, the living saint of the shrines uh, uh, of shrine, uh, 
uh, emphasized its devotees to, to dance or, or uh, perform tamal uh, during the days of force. And uh, he, he, he never accepted any other uh, reformist position not to do it. So it's like, uh, uh, and he termed himself a Kalendri, uh, a Kalendri Peer, a Kalendri Sufi. So uh, it's, uh, it's because of those sort of deviant pr uh, practice, like uh, uh, performing tamal, and, and he never differentiated between women and, and men. So in the large compound attached to the shrine uh, of this uh, living saint, uh, you can, uh, if you go to the Urs, uh, if you could go to the, uh, to the, to those Urs, you would find uh, hundreds of uh, ladies and uh, men. Uh, they they were there and they were performing tamal. So it is this thing that uh, that became uh, kind of uh, it 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 irritated the radical thought and uh, and this uh, and even. This place, uh, uh, a bomb blast taken place even uh, even there. So even these smaller shrines found uh, something, uh, you know, wrath of the uh, of the radical reform reformist in a sense. So yeah. So what what you sort of sketched out for us really is this complex picture where the Pakistani reformist modernists to run the state, they've nationalized, seized control of the shrines. I remember in my own visits to various shrines in Pakistan, seeing signs in Urdu saying, for example, you know, you, you, cannot, bow, you cannot bow before the grave. Bowing is only sajada, is only, only for, for God and so on. So theologically, practically, they're, they're controlling the revenues, but also the practices of the shrines. But for various groups, the Pakistani Taliban, among others, th this isn't enough, is it? And the continuation of these traditional, some practices of music, you've mentioned Damal, uh, dancing to bring ecstasy, to bring one closer to, to union with God. And indeed, that really important point you bring up, that shrines for centuries have been really key places of women's Islam where women could go even if they could or, or, or often weren't allowed to go to the local mosque. And, and this issue of women being in the same place as men, again, for, for various reformers, particularly the Pakistani Taliban, that was especially problematic, wasn't it? So, one, so the reforms of the state weren't far enough then for, for the groups then that were bombing and indeed suicide bombing, as you said, uh, uh, 30 shrines or so. And these are really major, as you mentioned, really major pilgrimage sites that attract hundreds of thousands of people um, to their annual Urd festivals in the case of Sefan in, in, in Sindh province. So perhaps you can tell us now as we come to our conclusions, what is the status of shrine-based Islam in Pakistan today? Well, this is very, uh, I must say, uh, uh, this is very interesting that on the one hand, uh, shrines are, take, are uh, appropriated by the state as, uh, uh, as heritage, as Islamic heritage. So now the, the shrines mean for the state, it's like displaying, portraying uh, Islamic heritage to the world. So, but on the other hand, uh, the, the practices, of, uh, many of the practices at shrines, it's still it still attracted a lot of wrath, a lot of uh, um, unhappy 
uh, uh, gestures by not only by the by the religious reformists but also by the uh, by the newly newly educated rational um, uh, rational elite of Pakistan uh, because they consider many of the practices like uh, if if uh, 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 there is a Sufi uh, uh, there there is a peer uh, so-called peer at the site of shrine claiming for uh, for healing or claiming for uh, 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 for a woman going there for, uh, for a male child, uh, so and uh, and then there are reports that that they uh, make uh, you know uh, some sexual relation with, with 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 those women. So such such things are quite uh, uh, one can find such uh, often find such programs on, at TV television where uh, anchors are investigating uh, such stories. So the so this side again so the irrational side uh, or the unpopular side of Shrine is as prevalent as the uh, as its uh, as as its position as a heritage as an Islamic heritage. That's absolutely fascinating. You've really given us a sense of of how actually the practice of Islam and indeed the physical place of Islam in a society like Pakistan actually plays out on the ground every day in con contemporary times. Dr. Ambar bin Abad, thank you so much for talking to us in Akbar's Chamber. Thank you very much for having me here.